if I was to list all of the things that Brian Eno has done, this is an hour-long event, and I fear we'd still be here an hour later and I wouldn't have got any chatting with him. But very briefly, as I'm sure all of you know, he's a producer, and an artist, an app creator, a writer, composer, musician, and he's worked with countless acts from David Bowie to Talking Heads, Devo, Coldplay, John Hopkins, U2, of course. He's won Grammys, he's won a BAFTA, and his own music, which he has described at various times, um, two of my favourites, Broken African Industrial Robot Dance Music, and I, my favourite, Juju Space Jazz. So I think we'll start, with, uh, we're here in Ireland, we're here in Kells, and obviously you've been here on and off over the years, but you did live here not that long ago. Wh when were you here and where were you? Well, I never have actually lived here for any length of time. I've worked here a lot, and I, I was just thinking that probably if I add up my time in Ireland, it's about two and a half years or something altogether, <laughs> but it's mostly been spent inside recording studios. But um, I was just saying outside to somebody that I always forget that whenever I come back to Ireland, I always like it so much. I forget how much I like it, actually, when I'm away. And it's, it's entirely to do not with the boiled cauliflowers and peas that <laughs> we <laughs> used to be served all the time, but just to do with the nice manner that I think Irish people have, which I, I find it more amenable than almost any other. The Italians I like very much for that reason as well. There's a line also in um, A Year of Soul Independencies where you said that the Irish were really well equipped to deal with postmodern culture. Are we? Do you think we are? Yes, I think so. I think um, one, one of the things that is very attractive is both a sense of commitment and a sense of humour together. They don't always go together. People who, people who have strong feelings about things and strong opinions can end up being very po-faced about them and very sort of rigid and doctrinaire about them. But I, I do like the way that people laugh a lot here. And people often laugh at their own expense too. They make a lot of jokes about themselves. It's very, I think it's very endearing. Thank you on behalf of everybody in this room. Well, sorry, just to interrupt you. To give you an example, I, I generally really despise fans I have to say, I know. Controversial. I know that's an awful thing to say, but it's usually because, because people demean themselves so much when they're fans, in a way. They, they put themselves in a position where, where they're sort of saying to you, you're so great and I'm so little. But Irish people don't do that, and I really like that a lot. <laughs> I, they, they speak to you as someone who they like your work and they're nice and they make a joke and it's all fine, you know. It isn't like that in other countries for some reason. Um, I remember hearing an interview with Seamus Heaney when he, just after he got the Nobel Prize, and uh, the interviewer, it was on some English radio channel, he said, um, so what does it feel like to be famous? And Seamus Heaney said, oh, well, in Ireland, everybody's famous. <laughs> 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 and I thought that was so nice. There was a sort of dignity to that, you know. Well, I, I want to go back to a time when, when you weren't famous, when you were, you were starting out. No, and, there was and no such time. You were always, <laughs> you came out of the womb famous. Um, what was your first, I mean, everybody has sort of the, the memories of their first engagement with music, whether that's raiding their parents' record collection or the obligatory piano lessons. But, but what was your first sort of a, a engagement with music? What was it? Well, I was very lucky to be born in a, right at the beginning of the Cold War, <laughs> when, for some reason, the little part of... England that I grew up in, a very sleepy part of England on the East Coast, was absolutely swamped by vast American air bases. None of that is particularly nice, except that in those air bases they had 
huge PX stores where they sold all the best new American doo-wop and early R&B and so on. So in, in my little town, Woodbridge, which was only 5,000 people, within five miles of it, there were 17,000 GIs. And as a result of that, there was something like 25 coffee bars in my little town. It was, it was about as big as Kells, the town. But it had all these coffee bars with big jukeboxes and pounding American music, which sounded to me like space music. I had never heard anything like it. You never heard anything like that on the radio. I mean, I don't know, probably many of you aren't my age, but um, early doo-wop was so radically weird and homemade and funky and unmusical in a way. It was really like hearing transmissions from another planet. So I developed a taste for this extraplanetary music. That, and I remember the very first record I ever bought was um, by the Silhouettes. It was called Get a Job. <laughs> I, I, does anyone know that song? It's, uh, I, I was thinking of singing it, but I have to warm up a bit to get to that. <laughs> do you remember about you know, playing instruments or not playing instruments in your, your case earlier on? Do you remember the first time you recorded a piece of music or a sound? W what was it? Yes, I do. I remember it quite well because I had always wanted a tape recorder. When I, as soon as I heard about tape recorders, and I was quite young, I think I was eight or nine, when I first knew about this thing called a tape recorder, and I always wanted one because I wanted to, I wanted to know what would happen if you turned a sound backwards. I was, was so intrigued by that, and I remember asking my parents every year for a tape recorder for my birthday, and they never got me one. <laughs> but they were quite expensive then. They got me an acoustic guitar once, which I never played, never been able to handle those. But when I went to art school, there was a tape recorder there. And I made on that, when I was 16, I made my first piece of music, first piece of recorded music, which was this. There was, there was this great big metal lampshade that hung in the room that the recorder was in. And it rang, you know, like a bell. So I recorded it at three different speeds. Sounded just like one of my records. <laughs> I never had another idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, did you, but did you, I mean, when you went to art college, and again, you didn't go, you didn't study music, you studied art, and you came across somebody like Roy Ascot, who said something about the idea of objects, to start thinking about them as triggers for experiences. Was yeah. that the way you, you thought about music? Yes, so, so the important thing about Ascot was that he, there was a sort of mood at, at that time, this was in, say, 1964 to 66, First of all, that all of the arts could be joined, um, that they weren't separate, that it was possible to bridge them with certain concepts, that if you were an artist, you should be able to cross those bridges and work in different media. That was very much an idea of the 60s, which um, was a very important idea to me because I was equally interested in painting and music. And I kept trying to decide which I should do. And then I realized I could do both. I could actually try to do both of them. Then within that, there was another separation between should I do experimental music of the type I'd been hearing about, like John Cage and Cornelius Cardew and those kinds of composers, those very sort of cerebral composers, or do I do pop music, which is what I'd grown up listening to? Again, partly because of Ascot, 
who had been the professor of Pete Townsend um, at the previous school he'd taught at, Pete Townsend of The Who, I thought, hold on, they, not, they don't have to be separate. I don't have to choose between them. There was this great day of liberation for me when Ascot came into the art school he called all the students together and he was holding a single in his hand, a 45, you know. And he said, this is what you should be listening to. <laughs> and it was um, the Who's single, I Can't Explain, which when it came out was a very radical, surprising piece of music. And I remember a light bulb moment of thinking, that's art too. Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought that before. I'd thought there was this thing called pop then there was this other thing called art. And suddenly I thought, no, it's actually the same, it's all the same thing. Mm. And you don't have to drop one to do the other. In the same way that you don't have to stop being a musician or an artist and you can then work in production, which is what you, mm -hmm. you did in the 70s. When it came to working with David Bowie, I mean, again, there'd been a lot of guitars and, and a lot of, the, you know, what we think of com commercial pop and a lot of traditional instrumentation that Bowie had used. But then he started getting interested in things like synthesizers and, and you know, Japanese instruments. But yet when you listen to that trilogy, like Low and Heroes are so different to Lodger, which comes at the end. What was the experience of, of those three albums? And it's a long project to collaborate. It's often, you know, jump into one album and then off again. But this was three very high-profile records by an artist who everybody knew in the middle of the 70s. Yes. Well, it didn't start out as a three-album collaboration. We just talked about the first one. Well, we didn't even talk about it very much. We just did it. Albums took much less time to make in those days. <laughs> and, and the way it worked out, it, it happened because... Um, David had been through some pretty tough times immediately before that. He'd had some trouble in his personal relationships and he'd also had, had some drug problems. And he'd grown very close to one particular album of mine in that time. Um, we had only met once and I, I hardly knew him, but he'd been listening to an album of mine called Discreet Music, which was, came out in 1975, which is a very long, slow, calm piece of music. And apparently he used to have this playing all the time. It was, you know, a, piece, a sedative for him, essentially. And I think he'd also been pulling away from the quite tight circle that pop music had drawn around itself um, by the early 70s. Because you have to remember that pop music was really quite a new art form then. If you think, if you sort of date it from rock and roll from about 1956, something like that, when the silhouettes get a job came out. <laughs> um, you know, we were, we were only um, not even a couple of decades into it at that point, as opposed to now we're six decades into it. So you had this thing that I think you get in the development of all new art forms, where you, you have a period at the beginning of amazing experimentation, now called the 60s, where people try all sorts of things, all sorts of combinations of things, what would happen if we put folk to music together with sitars and wah-wah pedals or something like that? So there was a lot of this stuff going on in the 60s. And it had sort of somewhat consolidated by the mid-70s into a, a few areas, you know, sort of hard metal represented by Zeppelin and those, all their uh, descendants, folky-type, songy stuff represented by Dylan and all his descendants, so on and so on. And I think Bowie was somebody who, who was sort of committed to breaking those kinds of 
forms. He liked to work somewhere else. So when we started on that album, I think it was because that was what he wanted to do and he wanted somebody who liked doing it as well and who would bring a, an instrument for a start that wasn't used very much and hadn't been used very well at, at, at that point, the synthesizer. Until that time, it had sort of been a, a slightly more complicated electronic organ. It hadn't done much other than what other keyboard instruments could already do. So anyway, we started working and then he was called away. He had to go to Paris actually to take part in a court case about something to do with his breakup of his relationship. So I was left there in the studio and I said, well, I'll just work on some things and if they're any use to you, they can go on this record and if they aren't, I'll pay you for the studio time and put them on my record. So he came back and I had ready a few pieces that I'd started, which because I had penciled in this letter of if you don't like them, I'll use them. I felt I could do whatever I liked, really. And that was how the, some of those longer instrumental pieces came about, Wasara and Subterraneans and so on. They, they sort of grew out of this, me just making a sort of landscape that I thought he might be interested in. <laughs> um, and he was, and he made something good with them. Obviously, people know about you and Bowie working together, but collaboration has been a really strong hallmark of what you've done. Is there any one thing that has to be in place for you in order to agree to something, to, to get involved with somebody? Because it it's a very mutual, symbiotic kind of thing. Sense of humour. Yeah. <laughs> is that simply that? It's so important. Because a sense of humour means so many other things. For a start, humour always means being able to see something from two different angles. That's what all jokes are based on. You know, jokes are based on the idea that you lead someone to think you're looking from this angle, and then you flip, and the laugh is that you suddenly realize, oh, there's that other way of looking at it. But that, that ability to, have to be outside of yourself enough to, to be able to laugh at yourself, to, to be able to think of the situation from another perspective, that's very, very important. It's very hard to work with people who aren't like that. They're sort of fundamentalists who have a very particular view of what's going on and aren't able to shift it. But luckily, those kind of people don't usually ask me to work with them. <laughs> well, th which brings me to my next question. Are, are you hard to collaborate with? <laughs> You're going to find out. <laughs> I, um, you get I, I don't think you know? so. Wow, well, it's very hard to say. Of course I don't think so, but... He would say that, wouldn't he? As Mandy Rice Davis famously said. <laughs> um, I think what, I, what I'm useful for is that I have very strong opinions. So I noticed when I was at art school that the teachers I got most from were not necessarily the ones whose work I liked most and who I would therefore most likely be sympathetic to as artists. They were the ones who had the strongest opinions. So it really helped me if somebody came along, like my favorite teacher was a guy called Tom Phillips, who was so dismissive of nearly everything I did. And I would work really hard on something and he'd come along and say in his very sort of s arrogant way, he'd say, it's a bit slight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> There'd be a month of slaving. <laughs> but um, you know, when somebody makes a strong comment, 
you have to take a strong position in relation to it. The people who came along and said, yeah, that's pretty good, what difference does it make? And, and I think when I'm working with people, I, without any form of affectation at all, I always have strong opinions about what we're doing. Like, I get wildly enthusiastic about things. And sometimes wild enthusiasm, even if it's completely misplaced or irrational, it, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. It pushes something over a lump, over a bump, you know. It gets it somewhere. It can even be an enthusiasm that you completely reverse in the future. It doesn't matter. Mm. It gets the thing moving. Sure. And on the other hand, extremely doctrinaire condemnation is quite interesting as well because it makes people question and defend what they're doing. It makes people say, no, I actually think... That like I had a period in my life where I hated minor chords. <laughs> I still find... Awesome. Yeah, I hated minor chords in songs. I just thought they were a let out. I still think they should be quite heavily taxed, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, th I think, you know, you should lose about 13% of the royalties of a song for each minor chord used why, why in the did they, well, Why do they annoy you so much? Because they lead to sloppy songwriting. They're for instance, minor chords are always used when people run out of ideas. That's when the minor chords come out. You know, the middle eight. I hate middle eights as well. <laughs> Do you know what middle eights are in songs? It's the... It's like people have got one good idea, it's called the chorus. So the chorus goes around a few, and then they lose faith and they think, I can't just keep repeating the chorus. Oh, could I have a... Oh, let's have a middle eight. And then the fucking minor chord comes <laughs> <in>. <laughs> And the only function of a middle eight is to piss you off so much that you're really glad when the good bit comes back. <laughs> so, so, so no minor chords. Well, I developed an interesting trick with minor chords. Do you know there's something called the relative major? Tell me more. Well, if you have a minor chord, if you look at it, some of those notes are common. Two of those three notes that constitute a minor chord are usually common to a major chord, necessarily. So if you play that major chord instead of that minor chord, it's like a miracle. You find you don't have to change the melody. Almost certainly you won't have to change the melody. But instead of this soggy, stinky minor chord, you have, you have a major chord. And suddenly everything is better. I've made quite a few hits with that idea. <laughs> In terms of though, like what people would call process, uh, and I remember I read something that you wrote about you talking about Japanese calligraphers and how they prepare all day, and then there's a burst at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but are you somebody that, uh, and this works for writers as well, where y you you go into the studio no matter how you're feeling, or, uh, and you do your you know your nine to five, or is it much more you have to wait for something to come to you before you you, you sit down at, at the computer? I'm much more the first type. I I work quite consistently, really. I work quite a lot, and. I work even when I don't feel any inspiration at all. I forget who it was. It was either Einstein or Picasso said, inspiration does come, but only if it finds you working. <laughs> and that's rather what I think. I think. I think in a way, it's a little bit like being an athlete. You've got to keep yourself in tone, you know. You have to be ready. It's, not, it's no use just warming up before the race after sitting on your ass watching television for a month. You've got to be in shape for when the moment is, is right, you know. And sometimes you don't even recognize when the moment is right. 
I was talking about this to somebody the other day. We were saying how interesting it is, that, to my brother actually, that your judgment of what you're doing at the time you're doing it is utterly unreliable. He's a musician as well and like me, he's often had the experience of working on something and thinking, it is amazing, this will change the world. And then listening to it the next day, it's like you were on drugs or something. You listen to it, <laughs> think this is absolutely boring. I, but the other, the strange thing is that the opposite is true as well. You can work on something and think, oh my God, why don't I just give up this job and do something useful? I am hopeless at this. And you just kind of think you're going through the motions. But then, you, I, I, I always just rough mix everything while I'm working so that I have some record of what I did because otherwise I would forget. I'll find it months later and I suddenly find there's a lot in it that I didn't hear. Do you keep everything, do you stacks and stacks of files and then often try to knit things together or, or go back at a, as a starting point? If you have nothing, maybe listen to an older piece of music to sort of get your mind kind of going again? Or yes, I, I have a, a nice procedure. As I said, I rough mix everything. The, uh, when I'm working on a piece, even if it's the simplest exercise to try out a new piece of software, I just give it a name and I put it into the file. I've got nearly 4,000 pieces like that, very few of which have been released. And a lot of them are just exercises, or were done as just exercises. And then when I'm tidying up the studio, or hoovering, or the various housework jobs that I like to do, um, I have the file running on um, random shuffle. So, so pieces of music come up, and sometimes I, I haven't listened to them in the six years or ten years since I did them. So I'm always finding myself washing up, and I've got wet hands and something comes up, I think, oh God, that's really good. What is it? And by the time I get to the computer, which is in the other room, with my wet hands, <laughs> it's moved on to the next one. And since it's on random shuffle, I can never <laughs> find them. <laughs> it's, it's very complicated. But it, it's that word shuffle is, is something that recurs in your work. And I, it, if you take something like 77 million paintings, which is, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that overlap between art and music, Tell me a little bit about that and anybody who doesn't know what it's about, wh where, where it came to you from and what you tried to do with it, what were you trying to say with it? Okay, so this, this is a kind of long story. <laughs> um, before I started working on music, or actually almost at the same time, I started working with light. And when I was 17, I made my first light sculpture, I guess you'd call it, which I won't try too hard to explain now, but it was a very, it was an ingenious device. It used just those little PIFCO bulbs that used to go in the indicators of cars, the ones that flick, 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 flick. And I had noticed that because they were not very well manufactured and they used a bimetal strip, which is a sort of an imprecise technology, I'd noticed that they all flicked at different rates. So I built a, a device that took advantage of that and without going into too much detail, it was quite impressive for how simple it was, how technically simple it was. And then, skipping forward about 10 years, I was in New York, and I was living in New York, actually. I was working with Talking Heads on one of their records, and somebody came into the studio. He was the roadie from the band called Foreigner, who were working in the studio next door. Do you remember Foreigner? I, I want to know love what love is. is. Yeah, that one. Nicely uh, done. <laughs> <laughs> Just more. <laughs> um, and he, he looked very shifty and he, was, he said, uh, anyone want to buy a video recorder? 
and video recorders were very unusual then. Had a camera, and it was colour. That was also to get a colour video camera then was quite unusual. And he only wanted two hundred dollars for it, for the whole thing. So I bought it, and I didn't have a stand for the camera, so I just put it on my windowsill sideways on. It didn't. It wouldn't stand up the right way up. So. So I was looking at the TV like this. I thought, why don't I just turn the TV up on its side? Suddenly I saw something like I'd never seen on television before. I saw a painting. Because I was just, I just had the camera pointing downtown from my place that, that I lived on East 8th Street. And in fact, the Twin Towers were down at the end of that view. But it was just rooftops, the Twin Towers and clouds. And it was so beautiful. It, it was just a moving, a very slowly moving picture. And I was just intrigued by this. I sat watching it for ages. And when people came over to visit me, they would sit watching it. You know, you only had to look out of the window and you saw the real thing. <laughs> but, but on the TV, because I had color controls, I could really do things with it. I could increase the contrast and the saturation of the color and so on, and even change the, what was then called the pedestal, the hue, so that the sky was a sort of violet color or a lavender color. Anyway, it was, it was lovely and I started, I had never had a television, n never any interest in television really, I can't stand it, but suddenly when television was doing this, making a painting, I started to think, this medium could go somewhere. <laughs> If it stops trying to tell stories and give the news and get us all overexcited, it could be something, this medium. So I started working with TVs. And then I got a commission from the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Boston to do a show with a painter friend of mine. I was doing these video paintings, basically, of landscapes or skyscapes. He was doing beautiful, small oil paintings. And the ICA in Boston wanted us to do a show together. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it wouldn't make sense to show videos next to pictures. Because videos are so bright, they're so eye-catching, and his pictures were very quiet, and I just didn't like the idea of these things outshining him. So I thought, well, I wonder if I could use video in some other way in this. And I thought, I know what. I'll use it as a form of light. I thought, we'll have his pictures hanging on the wall and I'll have a big video screen up there with a big shaft and coloured light coming out of it. One of the worst ideas I ever had, <laughs> actually. Why? Well, it just looked stupid. <laughs> you know, the video monitors were enormous then. They weren't little things like that. They were this deep. And there's this fucking great tube coming down. <laughs> and the little picture with this all, was like some huge you know, radiotherapy thing happening to the picture. And I, I could tell immediately it wasn't going to work. But in playing around with it, I thought, oh God, oh, how am I going to solve this? I, I needed to try this tube on the TV thing and I turned the television on its back so it's just facing up like this. And I'd made these tapes which just basically were fields of colour, so not pictures, just fields of colour for this idea of projecting colours. And I put um, one of the tubes I had made, the sort of square section tubes on there, switched out the lights, and suddenly 
I saw something I'd never seen before, which was this new form of light. Light from a television is not like any other kind of light. I don't know why, but it's different. It has an icy, nebulous texture to it. So I thought, oh, that's rather nice. What happens if I put another tube round this tube? So we've got two layers of light. So anyway, then I started making these sculptures that sat on top of TVs. And they work perfectly with his pictures, by the way, because they, they tamed the light from the monitor. So suddenly they were in the same universe as the pictures. And they were not like anything you'd ever seen before. Nobody could understand how they were done. Nobody understood that they were televisions underneath this, this thing. So I started working then very consciously. I, I abandoned working with images in the sense of um, video images. I started just working with the light from the monitor. And is, does this kind of carry on to what you've been doing in Brighton with the hospitals, which is where you've been sort of creating the space involving light and music as, yes. a, as, a, as a calming and sort of meditative place for people to be? Um, wh how did that come about? I mean, was that some, a, a doctor approach to you, was it? Yes, so to backtrack a little bit before that, so I, I started making installations using light and they were big shows, often in rooms four times as big as this, they, they were large. And I used projectors, I used video, I used all sorts of ways of making the light. And one of the interesting things I noticed was that people's behaviour was very particular in these shows. So I should explain that all of the light, the changes in the light and in the music were very, very slow. They were almost sort of imperceptible changes. So if you just walked into the room and didn't stay for more than 20 or 30 seconds, which, by the way, a lot of art visitors don't, you wouldn't know that anything ever changed. In fact, there was one review in a newspaper in the north of England which indicated to me that the reviewer had stayed for less than 20 seconds because <laughs> it was quite a long review, but written as though what he saw in those few seconds was all that ever happened. It was very funny because they change infinitely. They never repeat. So you have these very slow-moving things that people, if they like them at all, some people don't like them and leave, but what often happens is that people settle down and they become quite still and stay for a very long time sometimes two, four, eight hours, and sometimes to come back every day and stay again. So it has a, has a very interesting effect on people, and it seems to me it's something that people really want to find. They want to find a place where they can be very quiet and be kind of seduced by something that's visually very powerful, very beautiful, even if I say so myself. So anyway, in Brighton, I had a show in Brighton at the Brighton Festival, in 2010, I think it was. And one of the people who came to that was a surgeon from a local hospital. And he brought with him his mother-in-law, who he described as a lady whose hair was on fire, uh, it's, which is a way of saying she never sat still. She was a very energetic, active person. He brought her along, and she sat still for two hours watching this. And then she went back the next day with all her friends and they all sat for a long while. He was very interested in this. He thought, this is what we need in our new hospital. They were just in the process of designing a, a new hospital in Brighton, which had a very large cancer wing. Now, one of the things about cancer, of course, is, 
is the amount of stress and anxiety and panic that accompanies it. Because um, even if it's no longer true, for most people, what comes to your mind when you hear cancer is death sentence. And people are very frightened. They're in a quite bad way when they are trying to deal with this. So we built a little room, quite small, I would say it's four meters by three, in the basement of the hospital in a little dark corner that you couldn't do anything much else with. And this has been a very successful place. A lot of people spend time in there and they, they manage to calm down and start to be able to think about what, what they're doing and what their options are and so on. And I was very pleased with that because, uh, you know, as an artist, you often do wonder whether anything you do makes any difference to anything. <laughs> you know, does it really change anyone's life in any way? Well, I, I mean, a lot of people would say that music does and has quite the healing properties all, all by itself. But I'm interested in the idea as well of that a lot of what you do obviously has involved technology and you've been working with Peter Chilvers on all of the apps, the Bloom mm -hmm. apps and, and various others. But do you have any kind of concern about that? I mean, obviously that, that this also democratises music as well. You don't have to be a musician to sort of play around with Bloom and press buttons and kids can use it. Mm -hmm. But do you have any concerns about the idea, the, you know, the, the conflict between technology uh, and art? It's very useful, but art is that it comes from a different place, comes from more of the imagination that then the technology is a much more hardware-y type setup. Well, I have a friend who's an inventor, a very good inventor, and he says, technology is the name we give to things when they don't work properly yet. And I, th I really think that's true because you think one of the most technological of all instruments is the grand piano. It's a very, very complicated machine. If anybody invented one of those now, people would say, oh my God, that's never going to work. You know, if you think of the way a grand piano works, all those complicated levers and return mechanisms and little tongues that come down and do, that's technology. It's, it's just as much technology as any piece of software that I might use now. So the problem is when the technology doesn't quite work yet, so that you end up having to keep going into that brain that way of thinking in order to get any result at all. And I always think this is a problem in interface, that we haven't spent anywhere near as much time thinking about how we deal with contemporary technologies as with the other question, the easy and glamorous question of what can they do. For example, um, the mouse, the computer mouse, is possibly the stupidest invention of the last 50 years. It's ludicrously simplistic. If you think about it, think of you, this bundle of memories and thoughts and experiences and let alone four million years of muscular evolution, and then the computer, which is another complicated, wonderful machine full of all sorts of beautiful ideas. And what's between you and it? <laughs> One muscle. <laughs> it's so reductive, it's like the biggest bottleneck. So. The first thing you want to say, uh, well, 10 years ago, I bought a computer screen which you can draw on directly. Jesus, when you do that, you think, what have I been doing with this mouse all these years? <laughs> if I, I often have this set up and I show people in my studio, I say, here, try drawing with this. And they take the pen and the first thing they do is go, whoa. You can never do that with a mouse. So it's just an interface issue, so why has most design of the last 20 years not involved those kind of curves because you can't make them with a pissing mouse. <laughs>
But if, if, if the mouse is your most hated, what's your favourite piece of technology and why? That's a good question. Okay, you can have one choice. Oh dear me, I might have to think about that one a bit. We can, um, we can come back to it. Um, do you still use oblique strategies? Do you still? I know a lot of writers and musicians who use them. Um, my favourite one is that not building a wall but making a brick. Oh yeah. um, <laughs> but do you still use it day to day? I mean, I know you use it on various albums and you use it on some of the Bowie stuff. Is it still a useful tool to you and are you constantly reinventing it? Yeah, it's still a useful tool. Um, I wonder if I should tell the audience yeah. what. Um, in the 70s, I had a very close friendship with a painter called Peter Schmidt. He died in 1980. He was quite a lot older than me. Um, and we used to talk a lot about the different ways of thinking about working and being an artist and so on. And we discovered after knowing each other for some years that we had each kept a sort of little notebook almost of aphorisms, things that you should remember when you're working. And I remember the very first one I wrote down was um, honour thy error as a hidden intention. I wanted it to sound like one of the Ten Commandments, you know. That's what a Catholic education does for you. So, honour thy error is a hidden intention, because I had noticed so often that once you get into sort of work mode and you think you know what you're doing, you stop looking at all the other things that are happening. So, anything that isn't what you thought you were doing, you disregard it. But quite often I would go back to, a, to an early version of something, I'd think, Ooh, that's a lovely idea that I didn't spot at the time, because it was an accident. I didn't do it, so I didn't spot it. So each of the oblique strategies comes from a sort of observation of that kind, of noticing that there are ways of changing your mind and thinking about what you're doing differently. And it's to do, some of them are quite humorous as well, and it's again that to do that with that idea of trying to break you out of the rut that you might be in, and to say, there's another place that you could look at this from. So I had been keeping these, and it turned out so had Peter. We put them together, and some of them were complete overlaps. We'd come to a lot of the same conclusions, but quite a few were different as well. So we decided to produce, in 1975, we made a pack of cards, and there's an aphor or one of these instructions on each one. And in a working situation, if you get stuck and you really don't quite know what to do, pull out a card, only one, <laughs> and you do it, whatever it says, you do it. Or you try to apply it to your current dilemma. Do you, obviously people know that you recorded a lot of albums with U2, did you try to get U2 to, to use them and did they go for it? Do you know what, we didn't use them very much and in a way we didn't need to because th whatever difficulties we had with those albums, which were not many, I have to say, were not the kinds of problems that you would solve in that way. How can I explain that? They, they didn't involve direction, really. They didn't involve, what's the point of this album? What direction is it going in? They, w they were more sort of choice problems of, do we use this kind of approach to guitar playing or this kind of approach? So we didn't use them a lot. We, I used them, as you said, with Bowie quite a lot. and we, we had a lot of fun with them. For instance, we would each take a card and start working on a piece of music, but we wouldn't tell each other what cards we were using. And this produced some very, very funny results. Because there, there was one day, the piece that became Moss Garden on low, that came out of me having a card that said, change nothing and continue with immaculate consistency. And him having a card that says, destroy the most important thing. 
So he was always trying to subtract the thing that I was trying to build the music round. And, well, the result is, I'm sure, wouldn't have been arrived at by like any other. Same thing, you're taking things away. Taking away, to yes. To make it better. Yes. Um, w what you do have a long connection with you two, and what was it like working on those albums? I know that Bono called you and Daniel Lanois Batman and Robin. <laughs> um, but what was it Who like? Was, which one was which? <laughs> I couldn't say. I couldn't say. Um, but every time you go back to work, and there were a few albums, like every time you go back to work with a band like that, who, who have been known for, for reinvention, what was it like when you, had, it was like you'd never been away, or what was it like? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like that. Well, again, you know, it's, it has a lot to do with their Irishness, which makes for a very nice working situation. One of the things I always noticed about Bono is that he hates anybody being left out. I've, I've seen this before in situations where there's a whole lot of people having a good time and chatting and dancing, whatever they're doing. There's somebody over there who isn't part of it. He'll go and talk to that person and get them in. And it's a sort of, I think it's a very interesting thing of feeling that there's a kind of leak if, if that leak isn't plugged. You know, th you've got to get them all together. And he's very good at that. Um, he's, he's very kind person actually, he's a generous person. And so in the working situations we had, as soon as, as soon as we'd go back starting on a new album, within 10 minutes of, you know, how are you doing, what, what's been going on, blah, 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 forget all that, let's get to work. Really, we got to work very quickly. There wasn't a lot of small talk. I don't think a lot of people would think of you necessarily as a, as a singer. They would think of you as many things. But Why ever but not? But, you do, but you, do, you do sing, and you have a choir. You have a very in, informal kind of choir. And when I think of choirs, I think of, again, as you mentioned your, your Catholic past, but mm. you're definitely something of, of an atheist, and yet some of the most affecting music we hear in the world is, is religious music. So mm. what, what made you set up a choir? It's, well, it's an a cappella group, so a cappella means no unaccompanied singing. And... I did it really because I, I had for a while not been writing songs and I, I love singing, not only because I like the sound of my own voice but because I like what it does to you physically when you sing. And when you sing with other people, there's something really lovely about that. There's something wonderful about being part of something where, where nobody's trying to push their way forward, where you're trying to be part of a, a unit, you know. In fact, there's a lovely book by an American writer called William McNeil called um, Marching Together in Time. And it starts with him, an unwilling conscript to the American army, suddenly finding that he loved marching and trying to understand what it was that he loved. And what it was, was he loved the synchronization of physical movements and he loved the feeling of not being himself anymore, just being a part of something. Of course, the flip side of this is it's the attraction of fascism as well. <laughs> Mussolini knew about that attraction too. But nonetheless, when you're singing with a group of other people, you are both less in the sense that there's less of the ego side of you, and you're more in the sense that you now are part of a big group. And it's, it's really a wonderful feeling. All the people who do it are completely addicted. <laughs> they come every Tuesday evening to my studio and are very disappointed if for some reason we can't do it. And what do you sing? What kind of songs? Doo-wop. <laughs> um, country songs, gospel songs. Quite a few gospel songs, actually. So the, the religious point you made is, is quite interesting because 
why is religious music so powerful? And I think it's not because of the religious sentiments that it encompasses. It's because it is music designed to make you surrender. It's music designed to let you lose control, actually, to stop being that person who is always controlling everything and to become that person who's being carried along by something. That's, that's the whole appeal of a religion, as far as I'm concerned. You know, there are four ways that people practice this wonderful thing of surrendering, and they are sex, drugs, rock and roll, and religion. I personally prefer the first three, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I'm looking for the particular religion that encompasses all of them. <laughs> if, if I, sir, um, I want to um, open the, the floor to, to questions. We have a little bit of time for some questions, if people would like to ask them. There are roving microphones. And uh, can I just say... Could put the lights up a bit, maybe? Yeah, that would help, because I can't see anybody. But could I also say, um, could you ask questions whose answer might be of interest to at least one other person in the <laughs> audience? <laughs> No pressure. Very sorry. Um, you say something about your work as a trustee of Client Earth. Sure, yes. Client Earth is a, an English NGO run by a very impressive American guy called James Thornton, who is a lawyer and a gay Zen Buddhist priest. They are. That's a pretty good CV, isn't it? And what it tries to do is to bring law into environmental matters. So Client Earth advises governments on how to create legislation. It's advised many governments now. And it, it tries to do the thing that a lot of NGOs don't do, which is to follow up. So if a country has signed a protocol saying we won't fish with these kinds of nets, blah, 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 what often happens is that these protocols get signed and then the newspapers turn the other way and things carry on as, as, as they were before. So Client Earth pursues those things and it takes it takes governments to court because they haven't been maintaining their treaty obligations. So I, funnily enough, though I call myself an anarchist, I guess, I believe that law is one of the great human achievements. It represents a consensus of opinion and a kind of agreement about what we think is okay and what we think we should and shouldn't do. And the formulation of that is what we call the body of law. And the body of law has two sides. One side is the making the law. The second side is making sure that the law is observed in some way. And so Client Earth does both of those. So it's, it's not as glamorous as kind of taking ships up to the Arctic and rescuing seals or whatever. But I think it's probably as effective. Uh, hi, Brian. Um, in 79, Tina Weymouth said that yourself, David Byrne and David Bowie would be the, the only men standing at the end of the uh, that musical generation. If you were to project that 35 years into the future from now, who do you think would be the, tr the triumvirate that would be still standing at that time? Ooh, that's tricky. <laughs> this would assume that I have some passing familiarity with anyone who's alive now. <laughs> um, well, I suppose I probably do. Well, I think Pharrell Williams would be one of them, probably. I think Beck might be another. But how many do you want me to say? There's, there's quite a few people. There's a guy who calls himself Port St. Willow, who I have great hopes for. I think he's um, Anna Calvi, maybe. Actually, I'm not as good as, as Tina at <laughs> spotting them. I, my list would be much too long. 
Did she say that, though? I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Another question here? Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, um, in the albums in which you sing, I've often found that the lyrics that you write are really beautiful and really aesthetic and often really profound. And I'm, I'm just wondering, how do you approach writing lyrics and how important do you think lyrics are in your songwriting? It's interesting you should ask me that question right now because I find lyric writing so difficult. So difficult. And I used to find it absolutely the easiest thing. I could not stop myself writing lyrics. They used to be pouring out of me like a broken tap, you know. And it's an interesting thing. I've noticed this with a lot of people like me who are sort of untrained songwriters. I say untrained in, as to distinguish us from people who would sit in the Brill Building or Tim Pan Alley professionally writing songs. People like Carole King or, or Paul Anker, the professional songwriters, Lieber and Stoller, for whom it was a job and they knew how to do it, and they collected bits and pieces and put them together to make songs. I never did that. It was all sort of, I need something to sing, what shall I do? Just that was it. I'd write songs almost as quickly as you can sing them. And I know a lot of people who do that. And I've noticed that with all of them, that gift dries up. So now I have to work hard. And it is hard, actually. I think sometimes I still get it, but um, I, I'm looking for a new approach to writing lyrics. I've been working lately with Markov chains. I don't know if anybody knows what they are. They're, they're a mathematical system of creating um, permutations of words, essentially. So I've been trying to experiment with Markov chains to see if I can get things that are outside of the too narrow to excite me group of things that happen when I'm working without artificial stimulants such as mathematics. <laughs> it's a good stimulant, by the way. It's the only artificial stimulant I use. Hi, do you have a favourite song? Or do you have... A, does, do you use music to fix you? I'm a, a <laughs> singer sometimes like use, song. use Mozart to, uh, to, to get their voices working again, classical yeah. singers. Um, do you use any kind of palate cleanser for yourself? I, I think I probably gospel music is what does that for me. There's one song in particular that I absolutely love and which I hardly ever play when there are other people around because it just is so totally emotional for me. And it's a song by Reverend James Cleveland and the Shiloh Baptist Choir. It's called Peace Be Still. I really recommend it if you have, but don't do it in a room full of other people. It's, it's, it's so, it's so intensely emotional, particularly one moment in the song. It's like jumping out of an aeroplane or something. It's just a gasp. And when I hear that, whatever, however bored I've been with music to that point, and that can happen, I suddenly remember what it can do. It's, it's not a difficult piece of music, but it's powerful. I'll repeat that, Reverend James Cleveland, <laughs> the Shiloh Baptist Choir. Just have time for a couple uh, more questions, time no, Brian, I just had one question um, for you uh, in relation to the music industry. I, I'm sure everyone in this room is aware of what's going on. Where do you see the future of music in the financial field or as mm. payment? We all know that illegal downloading of music and um, YouTubes of this world and Google, um, they're expecting a lot of us to work for nothing. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the future of music? 
Okay, so the first thing I would say is that as, as far as I'm concerned, there's more exciting music around now than any time in my life so far. There is so much going on. And it's partly because if you're working digitally, which nearly everybody is now, you can do things very cheaply. It means that people who otherwise would have had to struggle through the bottleneck of the record company A&R department, which was an organisation set up to strangle any kind of originality and almost always succeeded in doing so, you don't have that anymore. You can make your pieces of music and you can put them on SoundCloud or wherever you put them and suddenly there are thousands of amazing visions and voices out there that nobody knew existed before. So that's the upside of the digital revolution. The downside, of course, is that nobody gets paid anything very much. Um, but the upside of that is that people have had to do live performances more. You now make money from live performance. So there's been a huge increase in live performance in the last 10 years. All, all the festivals you now see are partly because the only way bands can make money is from playing live. And I, th I think it's improved live music hugely. The problem is for people who don't do a lot of or can't command large live audiences or don't do a lot of live shows and are trying to live off copyright royalties from recordings. And, you know, one of the difficulties we have now is that companies like Spotify are paying such incredibly stupidly small amounts of money. And yet the record companies are still taking quite a lot. So, so there's an imbalance between what the companies who are now increasingly marginal in the whole picture, what they're taking and what the artists are getting. And it, it has to be addressed. And I think it will be addressed, actually. I think we're in a slightly unfortunate blip from at the moment. Thank you for the questions. We're almost out of time, but I, one more question for you, which is, you have collaborated with an awful lot of people over the years. Who would you most like to collaborate with that you haven't yet? Uh, there's one person I've always wanted to collaborate with, and I kind of think I never will, probably, but um, maybe it'll happen, who's the American bass player, uh, Michelle Endegio Cello. Do you know her at all? I think she's one of the great musicians and composers. She's an amazing, amazing musician. I just don't, th I don't think there's really much overlap between her world and my world, so I don't know if it'll ever happen, but... Give her a call. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have been in a studio with her once, and she's, she's not the easiest person to work with. Um, <laughs> but she is such a gifted visionary, actually. I could imagine that in the right situation we could do something great together, but I don't know if it'll ever happen. Thank you, Scrost. Mm. My thanks so much to Brian Eno. <laughs>